Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. In the podcast this week, I'm speaking to Rachel Edwards. Rachel is the author of two domestic thrillers, Darling and Lucky. She's a long experienced writer with Sunday Times columns and regular magazine features to her name. Now a full-time author, Rachel's contemporary narratives hinge on the secrets and lies that spear the hearts of the families and relationships she writes about. Rachel, welcome to Mostly Books Meet. Thank you very much for having me. Lovely to have you here. I'd like to start off like I do with all of my guests by going back to your childhood, if you don't mind. You were born in the UK and you were raised by your parents who are Jamaican and Nigerian. You've been quoted as saying that you felt like you were born on three continents at once. What was your childhood like? Yes, absolutely. So basically, in terms of childhood, I did feel that three continents at once was the best way of expressing that because my father was the Nigerian side and my mother came from Jamaica. They're both medical people and they met in a hospital over in the UK when there's a big call from people to come over and help the NHS in the 60s. And I was born when they, after they married when I, in Cornwall. So <laughs> no one ever believes me when I say I'm from the southwest originally, but um, I was born there. And the <laughs> but our childhood with my siblings, my sister and two brothers, was mainly in Hertfordshire. So we were in suburban Hertfordshire, kind of large village, really. And it was a good life. We had uh, the earliest, certainly, were quite safe and interesting. Our neighbours were friendly enough. We think we were a bit of an anomaly in um, Nebworth in Hertfordshire. <laughs> uh, my dad was a GP, so we had some kind of security and standing there. But we were, we did stand out, certainly. But I enjoyed it. You know, 70s, simpler times in lots of ways, but obviously politically not always that's welcome maybe in certain other aspects that I now look back and think oh that wouldn't have happened <laughs> so much in later times but it was it was a happy childhood overall. Excellent and did you read a lot as a child? I did read a lot I was one of those kids who probably either annoyed or delighted the librarians because I always took out the absolute maximum of books and the libraries I mean let's <laughs> shout out the libraries I always get to shout about every chance because without libraries in my life I don't know if I'd have become an author I doubt it because we weren't the poorest of the poor. We had some means, but books weren't... We had access to education, certainly, but the amount of books I devoured, I don't think we'd have been able to buy with four kids. And so I was always down the library. That's a great treat of the week, walking down to Nebworth Library. And the wonderfully patient librarians there would always give us advice and say, have you tried this and have you seen that? And I thought they saw me coming. I thought, oh, we've got to write one here, you know. <laughs> but I loved it. I, <laughs> like, I always had a book on the go and, and sat. And my mother, who's a very keen gardener, she's the Jamaican one, to this day, she's a very keen gardener. And she said she always had a spade in her hand and I always had a book in mine. And that's how she remembers my childhood. Oh, that's so lovely. And I love hearing this. I hear it time and time again when I speak to people on the podcast about libraries and the importance that they had in people's lives. I remember having exactly the same memories of, as a child and just being so excited at the idea of the fact that you got all these free books. Yeah. You weren't doing anything, you just got to read them. It was fantastic. What was the first book you remember reading or the, or the first book that had kind of significance to you as a child? Well, that's two parts of that answer, really, because I do remember reading 
wonderful children's books um, of the time. So I remember particularly being taken by The Faraway Tree, which lots of my peers will remember. But that impacted me as a child and delighted me and gave me a, and satisfied my desire for surprise. But in terms of the author I've, I've become, I think the book that really I first remember reading in a different way and at a deep level was Jane Eyre. And I would have been about 10. And I remember this because sadly it's before my father became ill and there's a great family breakdown. He, he left the family home. And the reason that's so significant is because I think it's possibly the only trip I remember having out on my own with my father. We went to Foyle's Bookshop in London when it was on Charing Cross Road. Mm-hmm. And I was allowed, this is a great treat. I, I'm still getting shivers now thinking about it. I was allowed with my father, who's a quite a serious man, a very studious man, he had to study and he didn't go and he wasn't a chatty dad, you know, you just didn't interrupt him. He was the GP, but he was very bookish. And we went up to Foyles and I was allowed to choose my own book. And I thought, wow, that's incredibly liberal for my Nigerian father. He wouldn't, he wouldn't literally let me do that, but those Foyles, I think he thought it was in safe, safe territory. Books were allowed, you know, I wouldn't be allowed to choose my own TV, for example. So I wandered the aisles of Foyles and I saw this beautiful leather bound copy I, I still have it I think it's at my mother's house and it's it's a copy of Jane Eyre and I was an absolute heaven I can still remember exactly what it looks like and the size and the, the feel of that book and I, can, I feel I'm sent to I can almost smell the pages even now and it's an absolute moment of heaven for me because it's that close to my dad and I read the story and actually what followed after that in our family times was quite tumultuous and difficult and upsetting but that one book I held on to it and I read the story of Jane Eyre and of course, most of us know that and, and the trials and tribulations she goes through in her youth and in her childhood. And that really carried me through in a very personal way. And that first person narrative, it was an incredibly powerful experience. And I think about that point, I'd hoped, I'd thought for about the age of seven, I might one day be able to write in some shape or form. But I think between, sometime between then and reading Jane Eyre, I thought, there's nothing else I'd rather do. I, I have to do this. It, it was, had such a powerful effect on me. Oh, that sounds amazing. I mean, the impact that just one book can have on an individual is quite incredible. And the fact that you have such strong memories associated with that says a huge amount. Sorry to hear that you had um, a difficult time during your childhood and your teenage years related to your family. <clears throat> what happened there? So there were six of us, I say, the family and never. So my parents are together. There's the four children. And my father, who was a GP in the local area, very sadly had a, a breakdown, as I would have said then. I, we didn't know what was going on because you always have to hear this in hindsight with retrospect and there's all whispers and shut doors on children certainly at the time and things like this very much weren't talked about. It would have been uh, the early 80s. But what happens, he, he basically had a what he would describe as a vision in the night and, and left the family home and didn't return ever. So my mother was left deserted in that situation and he was very ill. Oh my goodness. It wasn't a cruelty. So it's it a seminal trauma of my childhood years and now as a grown woman with who is married herself, and I think of my mother in that regard. So yes, it was a turning point for our family. That's what everything turned on that point. And it's still effective to this day. As it turns out, there's reconciliation later in life, and one becomes an adult oneself, and you can make things right for one's parents as the balance changes. I am the child, but no longer the child. You know, So I've come to accommodation with that. But at the time, as a sensitive and bookish girl, and also for my siblings, who weren't necessarily bookish that way, but we obviously all felt it, I do feel that impact, that it was an emotional trauma, did affect me and make me turn even more to my diaries, which I kept throughout my childhood, certainly from 
as long as early as I can remember, right through to 18 when I then started going out a bit too much to keep up with the, the daily entries. I'm too busy clubbing. But, you know, for most of my teenage years, there were these agonised outpourings and not always agonised, but always providing them with the blank page. And I think that, yeah, that says it all really. It was always going to happen. I hope, you know, it's always there for me. Mm, interesting that you definitely found solace in both reading and writing all the way yeah. through that, because that must have been incredibly difficult. Like you say, looking back on it retrospectively, must have made you realise just how big a deal that was for you as a young person to deal with. So after school, you went on to university, you went to King's College in London to study English and French. Yes, that's right. And then when you graduated, uh, Anderson, you took a job in publishing for a while. What was it about that job or what was it that made you make the decision to then leave that job and go on to become a freelance writer? Oh, what an excellent question. And I've never been asked that before because... It was a good job, you know, and it was, it was at IPCA magazine. Had to jump through several hoops to get it. I was really excited about it. And they were great with me, I have to say. Um, looked out as a graduate management trainee scheme, I think. And the clues in the title because it was a management scheme. And I already knew, if I'm honest, and it's probably unfair to my then employer, that I really wanted to write. I didn't really want to manage writing. I didn't really want to look at spreadsheets about writing. I wanted to write. And I knew, but I didn't have private means. I knew I was going to work for some years before if I ever became an author. It was a demanding job and it deserved proper attention because there's some fantastic people in publishing whom that's their vocation to be in the publishing world and to be publishers. I think I knew within a few days, I thought, no, this is not the way I should be moving forward. And actually what I did was then move out of London to Oxfordshire to take a less demanding job so that every evening I could write. And I thought that's a more honest approach to my working life and I might be doing this throughout my 20s, which I kind of was <laughs> a lot of the time until I get published. But I thought rather than take on a bigger job that deserves more attention, because I say publishing is very demanding its own right when it's done properly. It was a great experience and they really looked after me. But at the end, as an author, I just had to write. So management wasn't going to be it for me. That's really interesting, though, to have had that thought process, to have gone, OK, I know I want to do this, therefore I'm going to make quite, and they're not insignificant life changes. You, you mm-hmm. moved out of your city, you adjusted your career in order to be able to kind of generate that space. It's really impressive. It shows kind of how single-minded you were about the fact that you knew you wanted to get it in your future. You wanted that to happen. Yeah, it's quite single-minded, isn't it? Because I think I'm, I am quite an all-or-nothing person. I think I'm either all in or all out, and I don't feel comfortable in between. So I think that's probably definitely true of writing. Because all I wanted of life, and it yeah. sounds terribly schmaltzy to say, it was true love and a novel. That's it. That was my aim. And no matter what, how, what it took me to get there, that was the aim <laughs> from my early age. <laughs> You're doing all right then, aren't you? <laughs> well, thanks for, yeah. <laughs> you made the decision to focus on your writing full time in 2016 after you had a pretty horrible experience. So you had a racist encounter, your first direct racist encounter, which took place within days of the Brexit referendum. Mm. Would you mind just telling me what happened? No, of course. So but just to say, while I had experience over the years, as any black British person would have done, you know, there might be comments and, and snipes along the way. I had been lucky, maybe luckier than my brothers and not having that much direct overt racism. There's always what they call sometimes a teacup racism of a kind of quiet superiority, which people don't think you notice. But historically, it's going back. However, this was like nothing I've encountered. When I woke up that morning of the, the Brexit vote, I felt that, yeah, I'm sure we all did, but the country had changed. I looked out the window, I thought I'm in a different country now. And I went to an, a nearby market town of where I used to live, not in Somerset. And I was walking down the street and there's someone up on the scaffolding. He looked like uh, he was building or doing something up on the scaffolding. And he called down and said, if I were that girl, and at this point I was obviously into my 40s, if I was that girl, I'd leave the country. <laughs> and I was 
so taken back, so outraged. And I thought if he'd been on the street, you know, I'd have given a piece of my mind, but I couldn't get to him and he was off on the roof. And I thought, wow, okay, the fact that he felt he had freedom to say that to me, whereas a few days before, no, he might have thought it, but he would never have had the felt the license to express that racist view. And I was so furious and so devastated by why I thought this was going and that we'd seen for months on the news about the rise of the far right. I thought, this now, this is when it really matters. And it's such a significant time to be the daughter of immigrants or migrants. That's what the toxic dialogue that was going on about there is all about migration, immigration, immigrants. And I thought, that's why I exist. So I thought, I have to write about this. I already had the character of Darling in my head and she'd been there as a voice that was developing. But she only really truly became significant at that point. I literally rushed home and started writing. And I didn't really come up for air for eight months. Every day, you know, late in the evening, early in the morning. And I just wrote Darling in eight months and then another four months of edit. So it kind of poured out. And then the Lola voice came in as well as that counterpoint. She developed slightly later. So, yes, it was uh, very much a direct response to that incident. And I wanted to express that in novel form. Mm, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's quite inspiring that you took what was obviously a pretty unpleasant experience and something that should not have happened. And like you say, something that I don't think would have happened before the Brexit referendum, mm. to then turn that around into such a positive thing and the fact that you got your novel written, you got it published and, and it's out there and it's been a success. So that's a lovely kind of end to that story. Well, it's not the end, is it? But you know what I mean? It's a lovely result. Thank you. I like to think so. I think it's turning that into a positive and hopefully also a message that is out there now. It's there and people can just absorb that as they will and, and reflect upon it for themselves. You know, I think that's important. Fantastic. So these days you live and work in Somerset and you're writing full time, as I said in the introduction. What's life like? How do you spend your time? Are you a structured writer? Are you someone that kind of writes as it comes? Or are you someone that sits down in the morning and treats it like a full time job? How do you it is a full time job? <laughs> treats it like a nine to five? Absolutely. Um, well, now I think with Lucky, uh, my second novel, I did I was slightly more structured. Darling, it pulled out of me, I say. I just, it was a completely immersive experience. I had the characters of Darling and Lola going at each other, hammer and tongue in my head, you know. And um, I was just swept away by that. And it's quite a wonderful but draining experience. If I wake up at 5 a.m. with an idea, I've got up and wrote, you know. I could do that because my children were of an age, they'd gone to university. I had the space domestically to do that. And my second novel, I had more time and space to do it, and it took longer to write that. But now, in terms of writing, I do like it to be a really fully immersive experience. I think this comes back to being the all or nothing. I'm talking to you from my writing room. I'd like to have the, the space and time in my life at the moment to really focus. I could do the nine to five. But really, there's part of the romantic in me, in the truest sense of the word, that likes the idea of just being swept up by inspiration. And because I can at the moment, if I have time, I like to just go with the flow, you know. So if I'm not feeling it so much, don't force it. No, I am. Go for it. I mean, you know, up to a point, we all have deadlines. I can't get too carried away. With that <laughs> but I like the idea that that's what the, what the real authoring is. So, um, yeah, it doesn't always work that way. But I do, when I'm in a book, I tend to write every day, regardless whether it's, you know, every day without fail, unless something major is going on until it's done. <laughs> so, yeah, I hear this from a lot of authors where it's really just about putting pen to paper or getting your laptop out and writing, even if you find that actually half the time some of that stuff just is going to be swept away and not used. But it's about actually putting words on a paper, isn't it? It really is about getting it down. And I thought it was so valuable, something I've taken away, certainly from Darling, which I hadn't realised as much, the importance of drafts. I've spoken to a number of authors in the past couple of years, and we've all said that we kind of thought there's a slight 
hope and then maybe a touch of arrogance we think that you can get it right first time when you write a first novel you, think you should just get it down right first time because obviously this is going to pour out of you this this wonderful creative work and actually you know the wiser more experienced author said well no the writing it's a rewriting it's a drafting it's getting it down first of all and then craft it and craft it and then you see different elements and weave it together so it becomes like a three-dimensional sculpture at its best you know that is something I've only learned from doing it but absolutely getting it down is the, the important bit first of all yeah yeah you're absolutely right I think from an outsider's perspective there's this really lovely romantic notion that you can just sit with your pen and, and just get it down and then that's the whole process done but like you say I've heard from many many authors that that's just the beginning of the journey isn't it absolutely and I think in terms of my writing life these days I mean it's slightly bad for the fact that I've moved so I've moved from Oxfordshire to Somerset I have taken a conscious bit of a break because of the diving into the writing process because I like it to be fully immersive because I want to give it absolutely everything when I'm doing it I do need a bit of a break to do that I didn't have much of a break between Darling and Lucky and that was right because I felt after 48 hours after writing Darling I was still on such a high I was just euphoric I wanted to dive straight to the next book but then I kind of crashed and went to bed for like a day and a half because I was so tired (laughs) I kind of came down from it and with with Lucky it was a longer process about two and a half years but this time I thought okay I'm going to take a break have a think, recharge and discover the local area, you know, because one of my characters in book three is based in the area in which I now live. I want to absorb some of the atmosphere of here. So I'm taking time before I jump off the diving board into a third novel. And I'm also inviting writers to my home. We have a stone barn in our gardens and I'm using it to encourage friends and authors to take writing retreats. And that's something that I'm looking at at the moment. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I saw that on your website. It sounds absolutely idyllic for anyone that wants to come and just have some uninterrupted writing time. And what I like about what you're doing is the fact that you are offering two different approaches, aren't you? You're offering the ones where people can literally just come and just use the space and not really have much interaction, just kind of do their thing, or others where they can actually sit and discuss things with you and bounce stuff around. I think that's fantastic. Where did that idea come from? I think it came from the fact that I myself had been in a couple of writing retreats. I think when it comes to the end of a book, even though I have fewer demands on my time than I did when our children were much younger and then they're no longer living at home, I still feel that I need that total selfishness and intensity of writing the final stage of a book. So I do pretty much hold myself up. I don't know about this. So I have taken myself off to the hotel room and locked myself up and just all the room service. So I don't have to cook mainly. Actually, <laughs> my husband's wonderful, but he also works full time. And he's fantastic. I just say he'll kill me. But yeah, I don't, he had his own job. And it's just to remove yourself from the domestic context more than anything, more than any practical demand. Um, and lock yourself in a hotel room, whatever. So oh, I've been in a writing retreat, a fantastic useful writing retreat towards the end of Darling, I remember. And it was just a really positive experience where I burned through words and words and words and just wrote, you know, shutting away in a room. I thought I'd like to be able to offer that to someone else. And sometimes the change is good as a rest, the change location. It's very tranquil here. We're in a hamlet overlooking the Somerset levels and it is detached from the main house as well. So people have their peace and space. But more than that, I also want to build a community of support. There are those who might want to come and have a talk with a writer who has some experience and those who, as you say who want to be left alone on a freedom retreat and just write and maybe be catered for or not but there are also a third element to this where I want to encourage maybe younger people from well not just necessarily younger but possibly those who want to have the means to get away from a to have space and time to themselves I'm going to be offering in 2022 
some free places to underrepresented writers and maybe people in urban or, or combined living situations they haven't got the heads they can't hear themselves think to write so I'm going to be putting that on social media and looking at ways of doing that. That's amazing what an opportunity for people if they've not like you say if they don't have that space if they don't have that time and space to be offered something where they can come free of charge I mean what a brilliant thing to do I think that sounds fantastic. Well I think I was given some really great support by more established writers namely for example um, Catherine Johnston when I was in my 20s before I got my first agent I applied to the Royal Literary Fund for a grant because I didn't even have money for a laptop and I was you know, pretty broke. I didn't have, I was working, but I just had no money. And I really wanted to write. And I sent off part of a novel, maybe two or three chapters to this national competition. I, I won the award. And part of it was not just a little bit of money towards the kit, but also the most valuable part really was some mentoring sessions with Catherine Johnson, the wonderful YA writer. And she also wrote Bullet Boy, which is a fantastic established author. And we're still friends with on, you know, on Instagram or whatever. But um, that was a real turning point for me because she took me seriously as a writer of the future in a way that I'd never experienced before I'd never met an author before and to meet someone who who liked me who's writing was fantastically valuable and she was just so encouraging so I'd like to do that for the next generation come up as well if I, if I can um, that's also why I'm part of HarperCollins Author Academy takes on underrepresented voices and brings one and I'll be talking to them in a month or so about that for the second cohort so I think it's important to to get involved with writers coming through because certainly I I had that support as well yeah, I think you're right. We see that actually in the book trade. Funny enough, I was just speaking to somebody the other day who I met at the Books Association conference who is looking at setting up a bookshop and doesn't really know where to start. And so I've spent some time with her. And, and similarly, when I was looking to set myself up, I spent time with other bookshops. I think the publishing industry as a whole, you know, authors, bookselling, all aspects of it, I think there's such good people in the trade and people are very happy to share their knowledge and their experience, which I think is invaluable for people that are just coming into it. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's quite labyrinthine. Certainly the, the bookselling must be so complicated as well. I mean, that whole side of it, is the whole ecosystem of publishing, it's really quite a lot to get one's head around or even try to, even as authors or booksellers. So the fact that you're offering that assistance to other people is great, I think. Yeah, it's been important. So we're recording this in October and we're still, I guess, still in this crazy time we've been going through with COVID. How has the last 18 months been for you and your family? Oh, well, thank you for asking that. Yes, the main thing is that we are well. We have had extended family members, you know, catch COVID, but actually we are well. You know, my mother, um, 78, is uh, okay. So that's that's the main thing. In the day-to-day, it's been tougher, I think, for our our children who had just turned 24 actually yesterday and because it's just I think they're starting out going out into the world and then everything shuts down I mean that is really you know a blow I can't imagine so we've tried to support them as best we can through that and there's other people in you know far tougher situations we did have to recall our son home from his travels around Southeast Asia but I said you know at the end of the day when there's so many people in so for such great hardship and such loss that's in the scheme of things we, we've been lucky yeah. From the writing and living point of view, I think, was it Martin Emerson said on, a, on an interview a while back, he was saying writers are probably, the, he calls us a species, and authors are probably the least inconvenient species of this entire pandemic, which he, I don't think he'd been, well, I, I don't know the content, I didn't hear, but I thought, yeah, there's probably some truth to that, because really, citizen and rights, I've been doing that anyway, and I, you know, I'm not to make light of it, but I don't feel like I can complain, because I'm used to being on my own, pretty much locked down on my laptop until a book 
is finished. So I think that, yes, it, it has changed my view internally, apart from anything else. I think like most of us, it's just changed what's important, reminds us what's important and made the trivial things far less significant. So that's what it's changed overall, I think, like for many people. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely done that. I think it highlighted what's important. What I'm interested in hearing though is um, I've spoken to a number of authors about this and some have said that they found that they carried on with their creative process. There was no impact on it. Whereas others said that they actually had a bit of a, a writer's block. Which camp do you fall into? Were you okay and kept going? Or did you find at some points it was difficult to write? I think with the first lockdown, when it was all happening, I was absolutely stunned and reading like the rest of the nation at the time and couldn't write because it's just too much emotional turmoil and absolutely no I mean it's not just a case of having time and space for the laptop as I said it's absolutely you know the tumult within I couldn't deal with anything at the time I was thinking what's gonna happen to my family will, will my husband get ill you know and so on once we got through that initial shock well I then found that actually I was on the editing stage of Lucky and that was a help because I was, had to quite, quite focus on that so I was quite far through I was in the final stages of that book which made it easier in some ways I think I don't think I couldn't have started a project that I think we never say never but I think I'd have found it very difficult to go start a project from that point where so much global change is going on I found that have been incredibly difficult so I can totally understand that unless you're right at the end of something it'd have been very hard just to feel creative anyway so I do understand I know a lot of author friends as well who found it incredibly tough and people also make that assumption that they, actually it's, it's quite easy because you're at home, you're used to be at home. And I have said that myself, but then because I wasn't writing from the majority of it, I think I was done with Lucky. So I was kind of okay there. And did you read a lot during lockdown? Or are you still reading a lot? I mean, you sound like you're very busy. Do you manage to carve that time out? Or do you find that you're not reading as much as you used to? I'm getting a sense of wonderful proofs from various authors and publishing accounts and so on. So I always have something on the go. Well, I've always been stuck to my reading, of course, but in terms of time now, what I'm, I find I'm doing, and I've just realised this because you asked me, I'm slightly slowing down on what I'm reading because I'm preparing to dive off the diving board again to book three. So I have been making notes. I've got my little trusted notebook, or one of them is right by my side, or it's my handbag notebook, the same one that goes to my bedside. I'm at that stage where I'm just circling my characters and circling ideas and thinking here we go again, you know, you're going to go and start the next book. So (laughs) I am, I'm kind of clearing the deck. And mentally, in order to do that, I have to kind of park some of the best writing by other people because the voices that I tend to love are so strong that they permeate what I'm trying to do myself and it can sway me too much. So if I really love it, I I really love it. And then even with two books for hobby, you don't try and emulate them consciously, but you can't help but be influenced and changed by what you read if you really love literature, as as you know. So for example, we might come to this, but I'm I'm reading Bernadine Neverstow's list, having adored Girl, Woman, Other. I've been reading, uh, last book was Mr. Loverman, and I'm still reading that. And I'm also reading some things that she's curated for Penguin, some of the Mighty Back. And I just know that I need to leave a sufficient gap between finishing those books, because they're so, so good, and starting to write. And I'm going to be trying to do Benedine Light, which is probably not a good idea for my career. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, in, in, all, in all seriousness, I just think it's, you know, when it's fantastic literature. I had this at university as well, because I read French and English, as you say. So it's three quarters French, a quarter English. My final module was my English for my final year was Shakespeare. So we did a complete work of Shakespeare, which was absolute heaven. But I didn't dare even write an email, I don't think, for two years after that, because I thought, once you've read such greatness, how dare I even put pen to paper? And I literally didn't think about 
even daring write anything for two years. So I think, yeah, I, I am massively impacted by what I read and I try to leave a bit of a gap. Less so now, I think now I've found my writer's voice, but certainly I don't want to be swayed too much from my own thoughts at this, this stage. Yeah, it's good to be aware of that, I guess. So you talked about the fact that you're reading Must Love a Man by Bernadine Evaristo. Um, I understand you actually met up with Bernadine afternoon tea recently. Yes. What was that like? Oh, it's fantastic. No, it's great. You know, we'd contacted each other. We were supposed to actually meet for lunch before COVID struck and then that was all scuppered like lots of other people's plans. So we've been waiting for this for a while. So it's great to finally meet up. We had met kind of 50 other events and the Royal Society Literature events and so on. But it was great. We had a really good chat. We had good fun. She's got wonderful sense of humour as well. But also she had been incredibly kind about Darling. She was very generous. She read that and named it as one of her top three lockdown reads on Woman's Hour. So that was quite a turning point for my book. And she has marked her since her book a win, I think before, actually long before. She's always really generous to other writers coming through. So I wanted to meet her just at that level, as well as the fact that, you know, she's been a landmark writer, really. So, yeah, it was a really, really great afternoon tea. I'm quite jealous. I'd love to meet her. I think she'd be fantastic to go for afternoon tea with. <laughs> so as a bookseller and as a book lover, I have a theory that everybody that reads books has a book that has impacted them in a way they probably didn't foresee. And that could be professionally or it could be personally. So a book that really changed their life. Do you have a book like that? If so, what is that book? For me, the book that I think changed that there's no going back from was something that I read when I must have been around 12 or 13, after Jane Eyre, and it was I Know Why the Caged Bird Sing by Maya Angelou. And I'd been a voracious reader up to that point. Like most people, your children and adults probably at that time, most of the books I read, because I tend to look at other children's books, but then classics, were by white males, unless it was the Brontes or Austin, and that was pretty much it. So I don't think I knew that Black we were even writing and at that age I was, I was so blown away it was a it is a fantastic book and it speaks of such courage and transformation through literature literature herself it's about uh, Mayor Angelou's childhood her autobiography and how she grows up with her brother in great hardship and how she copes with racism in America and how she comes through that and how books are really her comfort and the love of literature takes her through it's about Triumph over adversity, like so many great books. And it really did, as I told you about the difficult time I had, and like lots of us do, I was in a sub story, but during my childhood, that was quite a tough time for our family. And to hear this voice just coming at me, really vibrant voice, and it was a woman who probably looks, you know, not unlike me. And she was powerful and she was strong and she'd come through this hardship and she was there. And this is, I think I heard about it on the radio or something. I just I don't know how I'd have heard about it. I thought, well, maybe our wonderful libraries again. I just saw it. But it absolutely blew me away. And I thought, wow, it was transformative for me. And and for that point, I thought, I need to remember this. This is going to carry me forward in my life now. I, I need to I need to write. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the one that changed me. That's amazing. Really, you can pinpoint the inspiration. That's fantastic. It's interesting what you said about the fact that... Um, you know, you're totally right uh, that so many of the authors that you would have been reading, we're a similar sort of age, we'd have been reading when we were younger, were, were white and generally male. And so then actually what has really happened recently, and I mean, obviously there's still lots of room for improvement, but I'm certainly seeing as a bookseller, a lot more books being published by less representative um, areas of community. And that's, you know, in all aspects, that could be race, that could be gender, that could be any number of different 
aspects. And it's really refreshing to be able to see that it's becoming much more of an everyday thing in bookshops. Obviously, there's still room for improvement. But how do you feel about how the publishing world is moving in that space? Oh, I'm absolutely delighted. I think it's fantastic. There have always been forerunners of this. And, you know, actually talking about Bernadette Vista, you know, she was writing for, this is her eighth book that she won a book with. And she was writing, tugging away, as you said, 40 years. And I'll go back to read one of her first books and you see how fantastic it was. So the time, but it didn't get the recognition at the time, but there've always been people, booksellers as well, who've absolutely sought out books of people who had less visibility. And I've seen that. I've seen that time and again. That's really important. But also, publishers like the one I'm with, Fourth Estate, who I absolutely adore, because they had the Fourth Estate Short Story Prize, for example. So before I, I was signed for Darling, they were already looking out for unrepresented voices. So people have been working at this and hoping to do this across the industry, I think. And it is a liberal industry on the whole. And people are looking to bring other voices on. And they, at the end of the day, we love stories and love otherness. Publishing embraces otherness as well. That's one of the great things about it. So where certain areas of society may shy away from that, they're saying, no, tell us your stories. Tell us what's different about you. We want to know. So the fact that now there's this, been this huge swell, and it's not since darling, but at the time, it was just on the cusp. And then since that moment of 2018 of being published, I've seen so many more come on, younger people as well. And, and also, you say, it's not just about more black British writing, but people like Glamru, um, they have brought out their book and looking at gender identity and so on, and so many different voices. I think it's absolutely glorious. And this is what the gift literature is about, right? This is how where we should always have been heading. And it's, it's a fantastic thing to see. I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. And it's great to be part of it now, isn't it? The, the momentum is gathering. So we've already touched briefly on your book, Starling Lucky, but the last book I'd really like to talk to you about today is your latest book, Lucky. That book was published in June this year, and it tackles the subject of online gambling. Just for anyone that hasn't read it or hasn't come across it yet, can you just give me a brief description of the book, please? Yes, of course. So Lucky is a story of Etta, um, Etta Oladipo, who's a woman in her 30s who's with her boyfriend Ola, and she has a job that she's not that interested in. She's very interested. Her boyfriend actually would like to marry him. She liked their sharing house, their renting. But she wants to settle down, get married, just think about the kids they want to have and so on. She's at that stage of life. But Ola drags his feet a bit and he's always saying, well, you need to hit a certain amount of money, 30k, to get to where you want to be in life. So she thinks, okay, you know, this is not good enough. I need to help things along. So like I think many people maybe during lockdown and before, she has been tempted online to look at these bingo sites, all these shiny, happy people gambling online. And she thinks, this is a solution. I'll just have a quick go, win some money, job done. So she goes in and quite quickly gets drawn into the fiendishly addictive world of online gambling. And it's about how her life spirals from there. But beyond that, the story also looks at the wider gambles that we all take. It looks at migration, the the great gamble of leaving the home in which you're born to come somewhere like Britain and also, um, yeah, the greatest gamble of how it's putting your entire family in a boat to cross an ocean to get to Europe. It looks at those kind of gambles. It looks at the Windrush scandal as well and betrayal and risk and all those things. So that's what it's about. Yeah, it weaves a whole load of different themes together. It's fantastic. And the information that you pulled into the story about online gambling was very detailed. It was very well researched. How did you go about learning about that? I presume you didn't just go online and do a load of gambling. <laughs> no, well, I'll be really honest about it because I think it's important to so I say, always say that while my fiction is really all facts, it's very much my truth. And 
when I was a freelance writer before I was publishing fiction, you know, you spend an awful lot of time online. And I'm, I'm naturally curious, like lots of creative people. I think it's kind of one of the demands of the job. And I used to think, okay, have a look. Let's have a look at this. And I saw these ads. Suddenly, there never used to be these ads on TV. That suddenly, since post lottery, there's lots of ads for online gambling sites. I thought it was ridiculous. I'd never do that. And because I'd never do it, I thought I have to go and see because that's the kind of moth to the flame <laughs> mentality I have. So I did look at gambling sites. And this is what made me so outraged because I didn't, I was lucky enough to, I didn't need to. I wasn't like going there to, to win for something urgent. But I was just procrastinating. It was elaborate procrastination, basically. But I looked enough and I had to go and had a little dabble and a bit more. And actually, I thought, this is enough to know. I just got far enough to know, actually. And when I was like, okay, sneaking off a bit to have a go I thought no this is wrong this could get you someone in real trouble I thought if I need to do this to pay the rent how toxic could this be and I looked into it I did read the small print about the return to pay and and the the technology behind it so on I thought this is actually really really quite pernicious and I thought I have to write about this so I got far enough to get to the edge and I thought no 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 to pull back here because again all or nothing if I'm step back but I was so shocked that this was just tell us about I'm sure plenty of people have a, a bit of a bingo and it's not a problem but beneath that there's a whole layer I think of dark stuff going on that I wanted to expose because I thought it's just wrong people it doesn't target vulnerable people um, people who have less money to play with and who feel that this is a legitimate means to to make more money and is it really so that's what I wanted to look at and I wanted to take that on I have a bit of a shout about that really in my book as well and and, and explore it, you know, uh, through the story of Etta. Well, I think it's something you do very well in both of your books is you take an issue that is something we should be talking about and people should be focusing on and weave it into story in such a way that the message is received, but in a very kind of clever way because it's not preachy, it's not, you must not do this. It is very much, this is somebody's experience and you're seeing it through, you know, their life, their eyes. I think it just works really, really well. Thank it's you. It's very, 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 very enjoyable, although oh, it's like yeah. terrifying when you think about what can happen. <laughs> I've heard it's quite a stressful move. My friends say, oh, that book is really quite stressful. I couldn't have made them sweat a bit. I said, well, that's good. That's, that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So we've talked briefly about the fact that at the moment you're taking a bit of a break after Lucky. Have you got plans for another book? Are you thinking something through at the moment or are you just enjoying your time? No, I have started, and I thought about this idea. So I've it percolating at the moment. Actually, on that, if I'm really honest, I think that I had a bit of a boot to get me going again around the time, and it's not a happy subject, but it's it's relevant with the World Cup and all the toxic activity on Twitter around the young footballers. That kind of shocked me so much, and I totally thought, well, what am I doing? Life is short. I've got to get on." There is a certain urgency, I think, to writing. I think. All my books, even though this one is not, not going to write, I'm never going to write the same book twice. I hope I want to write about new things, but there was going to be, I think, of anti-racist element to them, certainly for the time being, because that is something that's very much at the forefront of my mind and it matters, mm-hmm. I feel. But then they'd be looking at other subjects as well. So this is on to bring in some of what's going on in terms of climate issues and so on. So there's certain issues I want to discuss, but I haven't got a tick box that I have to go through to say a checklist of putting it in a book. It's an idea I thought about. And it's actually based around a character who lives in the Somerset levels, but also looks at the global effects. And she's connected with someone over in West Africa. So it's something I thought about and I've started writing. But I think in terms of really going for it, I haven't quite got that yet. So I think I'm a, just a few weeks off, but you know, I can see the autumn leaves through my window and I'm just starting to think, OK, 
now's the time to dive in. <laughs> just a few more days. Maybe I'll get to the end of my latest book and then I think, okay, now's the time. I've got to stop reading, start writing. <laughs> and that would be the plan. <laughs> it's time. Well, I can't wait to see whatever the outcome is. I think it'll be fantastic. It's anything like either of your other two books. Rachel, um, time has just absolutely flown by. It's been absolutely lovely chatting with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time out to chat with me. And yes, I will be making sure that everyone listens to this and everyone continues to buy Lucky and Darling. Thank you so much for having me. I've absolutely loved talking to you. Thank you. See you soon. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.